0: Welcome to the podcast series, Traveling Concepts On Air, hosted by myself, Tessa Diporn, and Brianne magana We both work at Utrecht University.
1: I am a legal scholar, and she is an anthropologist.
0: And we're both part of the contesting governance research platform within the Institutions for Open Societies.
1: In this podcast series, we want to critically question the promise and ideal of interdisciplinarity by focusing on traveling concepts.
0: Traveling concepts refers to concepts that travel within and across disciplines.
1: Do such concepts encourage and enhance interdisciplinarity?
0: Or do they create confusion and perhaps even obstructs collaboration?
1: These are some of the questions we want to discuss. All right, welcome back, everyone. We have a fantastic concept to cover today because we've been living through a number of these. (laughs) Um, So we all have at least lived experiences. Our concept today is on crisis
0: should i start with introducing our speakers please we have two guests with us today marie swinkels and laura henderson i have the honor of introducing marie uh marie is an assistant professor at the utrecht school of governance uh, at utrecht university in her phd she explored how when and why the beliefs of european political leaders matter in european crisis management um, but beside her research, uh, Marai is talented on many fronts. In 2019, Marije was awarded the Utrecht University Teacher Talent Award, which is definitely a big deal. She also founded inclu Jusen. Is that the best way of pronouncing it? Yeah, or just inclusion. 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 <laughs> uh, I had to add the UU as a kind of a university. Pro- anyway, it's a project to increase access to higher education for refugee students. And in 2016, she won the Social Impact Award of her faculty for this project. And in 2020, Utrecht University awarded Mariah and her colleagues Hilke Grotelaar, Elena Falbusa with the UU Silver Medal for this project. Throughout the years, Marai has commented at various occasions on crisis management and political leadership, on national news channels, in national newspapers, and has given guest lectures and presentations about these topics to a broader audience. As a result of these activities, Marai was granted a Public Engagement Fellowship of Utrecht University in 2020 to further develop a commitment to public engagement within her faculty. I also have to add that I had a very strange encounter with Mariah that we met in Nairobi National Park. <laughs> very long story through, through other contexts that we have, but it was, it's strange that you sometimes meet somebody in a place you don't expect to see them. <laughs> um, and she also has a very uh, lovely Twitter page and makes really good posts on Twitter. So if you don't follow her yet, definitely do that now. So welcome Mariah, thank you for being here today.
2: Thank you very much. Sounds impressive if you read it. (laughs) (laughs) It is. It is (laughs) impressive.
1: And it is my pleasure to introduce one of my very close colleagues, Laura Henderson. Laura is an assistant professor of international law and human rights at the Netherlands Institute of Human Rights here at Utrecht University. She's also the new cluster chair at University College Utrecht here at Utrecht University. The key themes of her research are judicial decision-making, democratic theory, and human rights. She currently leads the research consortium Professional Ethical Judgment for Global Challenges, also together with Professor Elaine Mack. And this is an interdisciplinary research project that studies how judges, lawyers, and policymakers can develop the ethical judgment skills necessary to adequately address contested global challenges or or crises, I can say, such as climate change or global access to medicine. She obtained her PhD in legal philosophy, from the Freie Universiteit Amsterdam, or the Free University of Amsterdam. Her dissertation was on how judges do and should decide in times of crisis. And um, so it's called Courts Crisis and Contestation, democratic judicial decision-making in times of crisis. She's also uh, studied law and anthropology, also here at Utrecht University. And I can attest, she's just a fantastic colleague and friend, so welcome.
3: Thank you, good to be here.
0: Right. Before we start talking about crisis, uh, we always like to ask our guests if they've ever heard of the idea of traveling concepts before this podcast, um, which I'm assuming now you know what traveling concepts are, of course. So
2: have you guys, had you heard of the concept of traveling concepts beforehand? Well, I didn't, well, except for your podcast series, I didn't hear about this term before, but uh, to me, like... Uh, Public administration scholars or governance scholars are usually considered as a sort of general practitioners of the social sciences. So in a way, we borrow a lot from other specialized fields. So I would say in my field as such, we use a lot of traveling concepts or the use of concepts we use are mostly concepts that travel through disciplines such as anthropology, sociology, psychology, law, economics and so on. But the term itself was new to me.
0: Cool. Yeah. How about you?
3: I think I had heard the term first when Brienne started talking about this podcast. Indeed, which is some time ago already, but it, it immediately, you know, fit what I know to be something that I see in all the interdisciplinary work I do and and the studies I've done interdisciplinarily. Is that indeed these concepts don't just stay within one discipline, but you know, sort of bleed over into other areas, and sometimes that leads to great confusion. Sometimes to great results. I think most often <laughs> to great results, but sometimes to confusion. So I think it's really cool to have a podcast. That looks at both sides of the, the consequences yeah. of that.
1: Well, we are always interested in metaphors, and that's a new one. Bleeding over, mm-hmm. I like it. It also, yeah, there's an undertone of crisis with bleeding mm-hmm. over, <laughs> <laughs> bleeding out, maybe bleeding out. <laughs> <laughs> so I like that. No, it's a good one because indeed it it, it can be a good thing, but it can also be uh, create some challenges mm-hmm. uh, in terms of whether it's understandings between different fields or individuals. Um, so great, crisis. crisis. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I did say we've all been living through multiple crises, um, and I guess that's nothing new for the for humans throughout history. Um, but let's start with how you guys use the concept in your own work, Laura. I'll mm-hmm. start with
3: you. Yeah. So I think in law, particularly, crisis is usually seen as something that has to do with a state of emergency or a state of exception, basically a, a really delineated point in time that's declared officially and that then means that laws can be deviated from. So things become legally possible that otherwise wouldn't be possible, um, which is, you know, makes it also a very useful tool for a lot of politicians if all of a sudden you can do things that you wouldn't otherwise be able to do. So I look at this legal side of, of crisis, which I'll talk a little bit about, but what I also am excited to get into later and what I think we can talk about together with Marai, is I also look at more of a of sociological or anthropological understanding of crisis. but legally speaking, um, crisis is usually regulated by a constitution or a treaty that says in certain you know exceptional circumstances laws can be deviated from. Um, at the international level, human rights are then usually what's deviated from so rights that are very fundamental to protect um, human interests can all of a sudden sort of be left aside in a time of crisis and then what's relevant is well what is exactly crisis what is a crisis enough to be able to justify all of a sudden um, limiting your right to freedom of expression or your right to freedom of religion or um, you know your right to be able to um, organize a protest all of these you know, organizing protests was something that during the corona crisis was, was limited all of a sudden. So in order for a crisis to be that extreme at the international level, we know that it has to be something that threatens the life of the nation. So it's quite a high threshold, you could say. It has to be the life of the nation is at stake. It's a time of war, um, a huge public health emergency. Threats of terrorist attacks in the past have all been accepted as things that qualify as crisis. And then in those times, a state, usually the executive, is allowed to decide on measures that restrict these human rights. Now, these measures have to still be proportionate and subsidiary, meaning they can't be more than what is necessary to deal with the crisis at hand. And judges will review this proportionality. And that's what I mostly look at, the judicial review of these measures. Um, I think what's particularly interesting in times of crisis is you see a huge shift of power away from parliament to the executive. Decisions are being made faster. They don't need parliamentary approval. And the executive gives itself a lot of power. Um, And then all you have left really is the judiciary to sort of keep the executive still within uh, its legal bounds. Now, interestingly, and sort of depressingly, perhaps, history has shown that judges don't always do this very well. (laughs) Judges are very sort of eager to go along with this idea that this is a huge existential crisis and we have to allow all of these measures because otherwise, you know, the worst is going to happen. Um, So I'm interested in looking at, well, what sort of factors impact judicial decision making in these cases and how can judges still be, you know, how can they still execute their task of holding the executive to the law, even in these times when the law can be deviated from?
0: Could you give some examples of where you've looked at this and what cases specifically you've looked at judges?
3: So I've looked at a different case studies. I've looked at the war on terror in the early 2000s. I've looked at the Eurozone economic crisis in like the 2010s, you could say. and um, Most recently also at the corona crisis. And I think, you know, what you see in these crises is, interestingly, that usually the first court that deals with it, the court of first instance, is really quite strict with the government. Um, so that judge, who's usually just sitting alone, just a one-person judge in the, the lowest level of hierarchy, and most immediately after the crisis starts, actually is extremely strict. So they look at, you know, what facts do you have to base this decision on? And is it really necessary? And, um, you know, is it not discriminatory? And that judge can almost ignore a little bit the social discourse going on at that point and keep really strict to uh, a previous interpretation of the law or sort of the the common interpretation of the law. But as that case goes through the legal proceedings and as time goes on and by the time it sort of gets to an appellate court, you see that the higher courts are much more sensitive to the political considerations at hand and are much more willing to um, show deference to the executive. If the president claims that something's necessary, the court says, well, you know, who are we to judge on that? We don't have the expertise necessary. I think that was just an interesting sort of yeah, thing definitely. to notice that these lower court judges who are very much dealing with the, f- the facts of the matter are stricter than the higher court judges that take into account these political discourses as well. And, and I have to say, by the way, it's not necessarily obviously a bad thing to take into account the political aspects of it, but it is something that I think as lawyers in any case we need to think about, well, what does that mean and in which cases is it legitimate to take into account these you know, sort of political uh, considerations and and democratic considerations as
1: well, in order to keep the law fair and just. And for how long? Well, because exactly. how long, you know, the war on terror crisis. It lasts forever and ever.
3: <laughs> and and I mean, the, the legislation that gave, in any case, in the U.S., the president uh, these crisis powers, was framed in such general terms that yeah. it was completely open ended, um and then just last for decades.
1: Yeah. Very interesting.
2: We will come back to some of these. (laughs) Moray. Yeah, it's interesting to listen to Laura because I already hear or see some sort of connections between what Laura's doing and what, what I do in my work, um, I mostly use crisis in my research as a concept or to look at crisis as something that's constructed. So when people ask me, like, oh, are we dealing with a uh, housing crisis or climate crisis or nitrogen crisis, it's mostly our images of what is perceived as a crisis. And politicians or leaders have a very great responsibility in framing things as a crisis, which also has its risks. Crises are also used strategically by political actors to keep our focus on uh, short-term decision-making, shifting away from responsibilities and so on. So it's mostly how uh, uh, political events are constructed in our minds. No doubt, of course, about well, some of the causes are really objective and real, But the language that our leaders use to talk about these events really matters in how we perceive uh, what is going on and what we should do about it. And I think these ideas that leaders have about the causes, the consequences, the solutions of crisis is what I study. Um, And so I mostly use their language to see what they perceive as a crisis as such. And related to what Laura said before, So you talked a little bit about threat and about uncertainty and about the urgency to act. I think these are all ingredients that are in this sort of common definition on crisis that we as public administration scholars use. But this whole idea of when people perceive something to be threatening, uncertain and urgent is uh, this this underscoring of perceived uh, experiences, I think that is what really matters most. And this is also what you see in so many political debates. I mean, now we have this big nitrogen crisis debate going on here in the Netherlands. And, yeah, some people say, yeah, it is a nitrogen crisis. Others say, no, it's a government failure crisis in a way. Uh, Other people say, no, it's a a responsibility. It's not a Dutch responsibility. It's a European responsibility. So you see all this contestation uh, going on. And it has real consequences for, uh, well, the world we can live in later on. And I imagine,
1: Laura, you're, you're, let's say... predominant data set would be judicial decisions Mm -hmm. and yours would be more
2: the um, the political discourses as well as maybe media So in um, in my dissertation I mostly use speeches of political leaders and newspaper uh, uh, articles in which uh, leaders or uh, lobbyists or parliamentarians were quoted by so statements of people in newspaper articles
1: Yeah and have you also delved into the realm of legal decision making um I have not. Or, or <laughs> interpretation,
2: I should say, not decision-making, but legal mm-hmm.
1: interpretation. And
2: Well, I mostly find legal documents also very difficult to read <laughs> in a way. So uh, um, uh, sometimes, especially when you research something as complicated as European economic policy, mm-hmm. uh, there's so many sort of uh, legal language and it's all very ambiguous. I mean, that's also part of the whole deal yeah. that everyone mm-hmm. can read something into it, right? So general uh, more ambiguous ideas attract more people to adhere to it in a way than than very sort of clear-cut uh uh, wording so a lot of these european legal documents are for me sometimes impossible to read
3: i I agree when it comes to like governmental documents about law, but actually these judicial decisions, many of them are written in, in quite fascinating ways, and I think you would recognize a lot of the sort of political discourse that you study. You see mirrored in the judicial decisions as well. I mean, even on the Eurozone crisis, I was looking at um, decisions from courts of the Eurozone members, so like Estonia, the Netherlands, Ireland, Belgium, um, and there, the, the decision, of course, was about the law, but but behind the decision about the law, it was also a, a question of, um, when it came to these emergency measures that were put in place to support um, you know, the, the debtor states within the Eurozone, it was about, well, who should be paying for this and who benefits? And who is the European Union for? It's about these really democratic questions of, of who is the demos that the judges should be representing? Um, and I think, you know, e- When it comes to the law, that's really technical, but these considerations are in the judicial decisions as well. And I really like Mariah's work because I think it's so important to look at this perception of crisis. Um, You see in law, you know, I was talking a little bit about these, like, formal mechanisms to declare a state of emergency, but in fact we see more and more in recent times those formal mechanisms are not even used. The executive doesn't find it even necessary to do so because with the discourse of crisis the executive is able to sort of create this feeling this perception of existential threat and that alone is enough for the executive to justify doing what they want without having to go the sort of legally mandated route they just have enough public uh, support for it mm-hmm. so I think those two sides of the discourse are really important.
2: Yeah and I think that's also in a relatively I would say famous book in my field by uh, uh, two of my promoters and two of their colleagues, uh, Arjen and Paul Tart, uh, Eric Stern and Bengt and Dalias. Um, they write about the politics of crisis management and they mm-hmm. delineate sort of five key tasks that Uh, politicians uh, and decision makers have in times of crisis depending well they range from sense making uh, to decision making and coordinating about a crisis to meaning making uh, and to uh, accounting for crisis and of course also learning from crisis and I think in my work and maybe also in yours we mostly focus on this sense making decision making Mm -hmm. meaning making process but this meaning making is so so important and it has such real consequences for how we perceive what is happening uh, uh, with us. And I mean, we, it's also sometimes very difficult to, um, as a researcher, I find it sometimes difficult to step out of a sort of dominant frame that's put on you by governments and the like and seeing that that's actually a perception of a crisis. So, for example, I remember that in my dissertation, I was writing about the fiscal profligacy of states. And then one of my supervisors pointed out, well, that's actually a very Western European Dutch way of looking at, uh, or uh, language of looking at what is happening in the Eurozone. So, in a way, I was writing about this crisis, but I was also, of course, biased or. Um, how would you say like uh
1: approaching it yeah. from uh, already
2: yeah up. because i was also given information by my governments by the leaders yeah, yeah. by the news media that i uh, listen to that i read
1: well that that reminds me of the what was named uh th- by the media the refugee crisis yeah. yes uh, a few years ago and everyone i knew who worked in the field of migration and asylum they said this is not a major crisis and yeah. <laughs> at, at that moment and you, you know, still in terms how of you're, the yeah um, yeah. perceptions that were going yeah. on here in the Netherlands. And,
2: you know, the, these scholars were just screaming that stop using this frame. Yeah, yeah. so language in that is also so important. Like a tsunami of refugees creates this image in our mind that is super difficult to then counter frame, mm-hmm. right, mm-hmm. as a so this is, I think, uh, or this whole idea that uh, me and one of my colleagues, Joram Veitsma, we looked at the press conferences of the Dutch cabinet during the COVID crisis. And much of the By the way, for
1: our listeners, not in the Netherlands, there was these were very famous yes. famous press conferences. With
2: <laughs> <laughs> Always at Tuesday at 7 o'clock, right? Uh-huh. Yep.
1: Yep. With very <laughs> interesting time. shoes. Um.
2: Yeah, but we looked at how the Dutch government framed sort of the uh, long-term versus short-term perspective in the crisis and all these metaphors that they were using, like we have to uh, look in, uh, we have to govern by looking in the backwards mirror. Or, <laughs> it's very difficult to translate <laughs> statements <laughs> on the spot, uh, but we f- were uh, sailing collectively on site so these are sort of metaphors that really trigger us to see something very narrow-minded like short and we have to do something now whereas i mean of course you need to do something and they resonate
1: with the dutch population you know any metaphor with sailing or water or yeah
2: (laughs) yeah it's part of the dutch psyche yeah but then our whole annoyance now that we don't have a long-term strategy for covid is also a result mm-hmm. of this sort of continuous framing this as a short-term crisis that we need to deal with now. I mean, we had to do something at that moment. like, But we also needed to have something for now. And this is lacking because our government mm. just didn't want to do this. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think crisis offers actually quite an opportunity for politicians.
3: It's not not a bad... I mean, it's it's neutral. It can be good or bad. An opportunity to change things, right? Because once you have this discourse of there being an extreme threat that has a structural cause and we need to do something about it, you have an opportunity to not just take these short-term measures, but to also implement sort of long-term structural change, which is what we saw happen, I think, after 9-11. I personally think the structural change that was implemented was not particularly positive there, really changing the way the law worked um, to be much more... um, focused on, you know, instead of following the normal procedures of criminal law, instead using all sorts of preventative measures to see people as a threat far before they've actually done anything. So not positive from a human rights perspective. But other discourses of crisis allow for, for positive change. So while the refugee crisis may not have been really that exceptional... That discourse could have been mobilized by people to, you know, call for a more structural solution to this, to call for, you know, European um, collective action. And I think corona similarly could have been used and I think really has not been... As an opportunity for you know, I don't know, a, a better healthcare system, um, more solidarity among groups in society, yeah, or yeah. you know, reducing, um, you know, commuting to work. That might be the only thing that maybe has changed. That people are working from home more. But these these crises offer opportunities, and I think it's important for scholars and also citizens and politicians to be aware of how we use them, because there is a choice there to be yeah. made. It's not just sort of inevitable that things have to go in one direction or another. Yeah.
2: I love this. I love this so much because I think this is. I th- that that's also what happened at the start of COVID. That everyone's like, this will be the trigger for climate uh, change that we need. This will be. This will lead to better healthcare. I was already very cautious. That, like crises themselves, they don't lead to institutional change, or sometimes they do, but not in the direction that <laughs> sometimes we want. Uh, they often lead to states of emergencies that are uh, then not recalled for a long time. I think we're exactly, still yeah. in one, right? Or not? Well, I don't even know um, and I think that's what I also I looked up Laura's dissertation I really liked it that you also focusing on actors right so most of the work on crisis is uh, is more systemic it's very much on how systems need to change and adapt and so on but it's all People in these systems, they have a choice. And we call this like crisis exploitation. This can go like two ways, right? So political leaders, they can use crisis strategically for their own benefit. I think we see in, well, with our uh, Prime Minister uh, Rutte that he also uses crisis as a sort of way of governing uh, without having to account for his actions in a way, uh, shifting responsibilities and so on. Not remembering. Not remembering things, <laughs> indeed. But you can also, of course, exploit crisis... And take them as an opportunity to reform, but that really takes agency and uh, not only like good ideas of people to do certain things, but also people in positions of power yeah, to the political will to make act, sure yeah. that no, this yeah, will yeah. that certain beliefs of people uh, will change and will change for the benefit of this institutional change that they see necessary. Uh, but that's what I also mm. really liked about Laura's work, that it's also focused on actors and mm-hmm. agents. Because I think in my field, in European studies, public administration, the idea that leaders or people can actually change things is still sometimes a bit, it's very much on institutions. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Very institution-centered mm-hmm. in a way.
1: You mentioned a book um, from Politart and others. I'm interested in if there's a lot of overlap in terms of the scholarship that you rely on. I know you probably also, you, you have the legal philosophy background. Yeah, so. but,
3: but the, the, the book you mentioned, Marai, from Paul and um, uh, Des Moines. Arring yeah, I, that was one of the first things I read in my dissertation when I was working on crisis and really helped me understand that sort of discursive element of, of how a crisis is is created in public discourse. So I, I really relied on that a lot. Um, I think the challenge for me was then sort of translating that to a legal discourse as well in which which I did use legal philosophy for then because I think there's a lot of connections in legal philosophy with how crises are perceived I used some like Carl Schmitt uh, who says that you know during a crisis you find out who the sovereign is because that's yeah. the one who gets to decide I to teach that in my
0: course on sovereignty We mm-hmm. use the word yeah Carl Schmitt
3: yeah and then I think you know if you stay too far in Carl Schmitt you get rather dictatorial tendencies <laughs> so so I I went there <laughs> the and then, part, and then yeah. <laughs> moved back moved back from that a little bit Well, and a little bit back to then more the sort of like public administration or democracy side when when I said, well, okay, let's look at who is the sovereign in these crises, who is actually making decisions on whether it's a crisis or not. It's not... It's not the executive by himself or herself. It really is a collective sort of back and forth, a ping pong game between maybe the executive who starts the, who sort of issues a proposal saying this is a crisis, but that has to be adopted by other institutional actors as well, other societal actors. So together, the the broader sort of public, you could say, is, I think, the sovereign at the end of the day. So that was sort of an optimistic end to my in sort of foray into, into crisis that we as citizens, as voters as participants in public discourse, are the ones who decide how these crises are interpreted and managed and, um, you know, what what consequences they have.
2: Yeah, but as I said, I also struggle with this on a European level. So I mostly also, mm-hmm. in, in my dissertation, yours on crisis, I, I termed it as a transboundary crisis and I think uh, you you started off with uh, that in times of crisis authority contracts to the executive but in the EU it's always a bit difficult who this executive then is and uh, well what we've seen I think in most uh, EU crisis is that it then contracts to the European Council, to the heads of state and government but to who are they well they're of course responsible and accountable to their own constituents but uh, what if you make a collective decision there who can hold them to account. So I think that is also a struggle going on there. And much of the sort of meaning making or discursive processes going on at the EU level are not seen or heard by us constituents in our nation Mm states. So... uh, Who's a sovereign there? I struggle with that uh, a lot. And I I don't use much legal work to to read about this. But if you have any reading... Yeah, yeah. this
1: was my next question. Because we've seen in a number of our episodes where there's a lot of traveling to law... (laughs)
0: <laughs> but it doesn't travel back <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, much less so much, much, much less yeah. so and I find that I'm so uh intrigued by this um you know once or twice okay but we've seen it really time and again where a lot mm-hmm. of the legal literature hasn't yet moved where to me it's it's absolutely an essential part of governance um and public administration so that's curious uh, yeah
0: yeah, and you both mentioned other fields. Are there, I'm, I'm trying to think. Like, is there a conceptual or a disciplinary home of the concept crisis? Does it really originate from a particular field? Or
2: I think I mean disasters, uh, uh, catastrophes, and so on. They're as old as mankind. I think, at least what I know from the field that I started off with. I think. Uh, uh sociology, disaster studies, uh emergency management is also I think it came from a very sort of practical uh point of view. Like yeah, this yeah. is happening. What do our professionals, our emergency managers, what do they need to do to cope with these crises effectively, right? So much of the work, I think, in crisis management is also very profession-oriented. Like, what do yeah, yeah. Uh, people working in crisis management need to do in order to uh, adapt or uh, make sure that this won't happen again? So with one of my uh, colleagues from Leiden, Sonica Kuipers, we, for example, once did a study in which we wanted to find out if um, international summits and the security organization around international summits, if that mattered for the security outcome because for example in Canada some of these international summits ended in super big rioting and some here in the Netherlands ended quite peacefully so is that just a matter of luck or not well, we found out, no, it's not a matter of luck. Uh, and how you design sort of your crisis management system really matters for these uh, yeah, security yeah, yeah. outcomes there um, and uh, who collaborates with whom and what kind of uh, ideas of security are prevalent in these organisations. So, it, But that was very sort of practice-focused, like what do emergency managers, crisis managers can take away from this for organising for uh, uh, crisis. So... I think it really originated from the need on the ground. Like We need to know what to do. Um, I think um, in the Netherlands, Uri Rosenthal, our former uh, Minister of Foreign Affairs, but also a professor at Leiden, uh, was uh, laying the groundwork for crisis management research. I think Karan uh wrote a very... Um, well-known book on uh, disaster management early in the 80s. I think it happened with the industrialization of countries where there was more uh, tendency for crises and disasters to happen. That that was also the start of this whole field. So in the yeah, 80s, yeah. 90s, mm-hmm. I think it really spur- 70s it spurred, and uh, there was there were more and more studies. But I'm not yeah. sure how this is in law.
3: Well, I. T- I think in law, I mean, it has such a sort of historical connection to this idea of state of emergency that that sort of, you know, has been around constitutionally, um, at least since the 1800s. But I think this practical orientation is really important um, because we can sort of philosophize forever about, well, what does it mean to have a crisis and and a state of emergency? And, you know, you can also use all kinds of philosophical hermeneutical analyses to understand the discourse. But at the end of the day, we're doing this, or at least... yeah i think I think both that you and I are doing this but I to help someone um and I'm trying to at least give some ideas for Judicial decision makers for well, what do you do when you're confronted with this type of crisis? And part of that is understanding what's going on. I think that's that's the first step. But then secondly, well, how do you um, deal with these different dynamics at hand when there is great uncertainty and sort of no decision is really a good decision? So every decision is going to have some bad aspects to it. Well, what's still the best decision to be made? Um, and to try to give some guidance on that as well. And I think that comes down to you know it's not a surprise since I'm a, a human rights lawyer, but it comes down down to an understanding of protecting human rights at the end of the day. So, you can have all kinds of deviations from procedures, from normal budgetary practices, from normal decision making procedures, but there has to be a higher standard for deviating from human rights. And I think it's important to also sort of put that idea forward uh, for national judges as well, who, I mean, in the Netherlands, we're, we're relatively privileged that human rights do have a central, quite a central place in Dutch domestic law. But even in the Netherlands, you see that judges still frequently sort of forget that human rights have this Mm. important place and will too quickly look at these procedural aspects instead of protecting the substantive human rights. So that's sort of part
1: of what I hope to give as a practical consequence to my work. And I have a question because I think it actually relates, highly relates to both of your research. And we heard a little bit that you're looking at in the past, you've looked at newspaper discourse. How much do media studies play a role Mm -hmm. in both of... In both of your research? For me, quite a lot, actually. I think the, the method I
3: used in my dissertation in any case, and probably thereafter as well, um, comes from media studies, sort of a di- critical discourse analysis of both political discourse and then judicial discourse and taking that and not as sort of a legal document but rather as an artifact of what people are thinking and talking about which comes from media studies so i think that that plays a large role in my work oh that's i
2: yeah mm -hmm. yeah very interested in that yeah i think same uh, for my field there's a lot of political communication work involved Uh, but i've also really looked at so I use the newspaper statements to see what ideas political leaders had and how they changed over time. And for this whole when beliefs change, I turn more to the psychological literature, yeah, so the yeah, political yeah. psychology mm. uh, uh, literature. But then also we work together with some linguists because in to determine when. Uh, someone holds a certain idea you need to understand how they think about causality and then we talk to linguistics uh, how Mm. they see what when something is a causal idea so in a way yeah I think we borrow on so many (laughs) strands and sometimes I don't even know (laughs) what comes from where Uh, but I think uh, it's definitely not a monodisciplinary term no, and there's something particular about the term as well. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned
0: now, you know, disaster, catastrophe, urgency, emergency. I was also thinking a problem or a conflict or a challenge. There, but, there are, but there's something about the word crisis that somehow resonates with everybody because you can also, we we're talking about kind of societal crises, but you also have, I'm going through a personal yeah, crisis. Yeah, 100%. Right? And it's kind of like we all understand what people mean with that. Well, you don't say, I'm going through a personal emergency or a personal conflict. So there's something particular about the word crisis, which I find interesting.
2: Yeah, maybe also because it is such a pretty ambiguous word that so many people can read something into it. Yeah, Uh, And there's one study I once read, I forgot the authors, but they research that ideas that are more ambiguous attract more people. Uh, So maybe a crisis Mm. is... Uh, very ambiguous because so many. Be- I mean, I can have like a relationship crisis, yeah. Or my country can go through a crisis or something. Or my department can have a crisis with staffing or something. That's yeah, yeah, yeah. Very there's different a, thing. Yeah. there's a,
1: uh, an urgency behind the word. Yeah. Whereas I think with some of the other words, that's not always the case. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, whereas I feel that whether it's on a personal level or societal level, when we hear the word crisis. We we understand that there's an urgency. There's something you that, can't ignore about it, yeah, and yeah. I
3: think maybe in some of our contemporary management styles, we would like to ignore a lot of things. But when a crisis <laughs> comes, you can't ignore that. Yeah. So, and I think no. you know the, the opposite of crisis, and maybe Madai wants to follow up on this, is planning ahead. You know, and sort of instead of crisis management all of the time, we can you know realize that these crises could have been prevented or managed better if they had been planned for and the word crisis implies it couldn't have been planned for right that it was something no one saw coming and you you heard that idea in the eurozone crisis after 9-11 now with corona you know no one could have seen it coming but of course we know that that's not the case that all of these things had predecessors you know there was terrorism before 9-11 there were pandemics before covid Um, there's always people who saw it coming (laughs) and there are always people who did see it coming and you know we're saying that more money needed to be spent making plans for it Uh, but of course then that doesn't happen and so as sort of a, a way to push away the blame the government likes the idea of oh this is a crisis
2: that no one's not coming yeah and then i think at the same time there's also lots of creeping crisis so there's uh, i mean for a long time i think climate change has been a creeping crisis and maybe it still is too many people it still is a creeping crisis uh that i mean uh, things are happening but they're not as threatening or they're not as urgent or they're not perceived as uncertain to their livelihoods or their personal situations that they are still creeping on whereas we know that they have catastrophic results if we let them on (laughs) if we let Mm -hmm. them creep on in a way but uh yeah that's And then I come back to this whole idea of perception again. So when people or social systems perceive a certain level of urgency, of threat, of uncertainty, then, of course, they'll start acting on it and start labeling something as a true crisis. But until that is the case, I think there's more of a debate over how severe a crisis is, if something is a crisis, and what we should do about it. Yeah. Well, thinking,
0: looking ahead, this is a question I always like to ask. So what do we see as the... The future of crisis studies or in our academic kind of thinking about crisis as a concept? Or what do you guys predict and planning ahead, saying <laughs> the same theme,
2: where are we going to move forward with this concept of crisis? Well, maybe touching on what, what Laura said before like the opposite of crisis is planning ahead. I think uh, as public administration scholars, we always have a sort of tendency to approach uh, uh, research. uh, And this is something we can learn from, uh, I think, lawyers, is that we can get a bit more normative in a way (laughs) Uh, that uh, I think warning more that labeling or uh, constructing everything as a crisis, as such, as a governmental strategy is really uh, uh, damaging uh, uh, the democratic process, uh, but is also really increasing short-termism in a way and uh, deviates from what we need now. So that is, I think, one way that I would like to move forward and explore how you can have crisis but also still plan ahead or think about the future or see the future as an inherent part of crisis management. Um, uh, And I think also at a European level, we still haven't really figured out uh, what leadership in a crisis means. uh, there's this uh, famous saying of uh, Europe will be forged in crisis. And I mean, that is true to a certain extent, but then also what leadership works then in, in these types of crises, and how do these leaders uh, 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 are being held to account and so on. So I think these are like two... First, wait. I have plenty of more ideas, but we'll just have to follow you on Twitter to see. <laughs>
3: Laura, any ideas? Well, I heard a term the other day that was used by one of our colleagues, Tarlach McGonigal, who uh, talked about perma crisis as sort of this stage that we are now in, uh, in in Western, you know, Western countries at least, where crises are following each other in rapid succession, and that. The, the style of governance that then adopt, adapts to that is just sort of being in a permanent state of crisis, and I think there's two aspects to that. One is this style of governance that um, executives around the world are seeing this advantage to being in crisis, are pulling more power towards themselves, and that's also then a result of the fact that our con- that our that our lives are much faster paced than ever before, and that there is such a high level of integration between countries and and trade streams and information streams, that faster decision making is needed. It's not completely, I think, you know, unrealistic to say that parliamentary procedures sometimes take longer than Uh, is appropriate for a situation. And so we do need ways, I think, government, you know, sort of ideas, new ideas about how we can decide politically faster um, and more in a a more appropriate way to the fast changes that we are seeing in the world. Now, I think that should be done, though, in a way that's not this perma-crisis idea of just sort of doing it on, on an ad hoc basis from crisis to crisis, trying to figure it out. Let's think a bit more systematically about, well, what fits this, you know, era that we're in. And also realizing that some of these crises, or a lot of these crises, are, are predictable, are of our own making. I mean, crime, climate crisis is here. Uh, it is not something only of the future anymore. We see the effects, you know, in the Netherlands as well. And, and this is something that's going to only get worse, unfortunately. So let's also start s- thinking systematically about, well, how can our governance structures, uh, executive parliament and, and judiciary, adapt to the challenges that that's going to bring for us all?
2: How can we also train them in not only sort of the technical capacities that they need in order to deal with crisis or what kind of crisis management structures should be Mm -hmm. in place and so on, but also make them aware of or monitor the sort of ideas that are underpinning and this whole construction idea of crisis, that that's also inherently a part of how governments plan ahead for crisis Mm -hmm. in a way so most of the i think work in practice is very much on these technical uh, skills that the crisis managers need but yeah why at the european council level why is there not sort of an ideational analysis unit that sort of also tries to monitor all these discourses uh, about Mm -hmm. crisis that are uh, going on and that they use that also as a way of thinking about what their discourse how they want to shape that discourse further so i think that's also important
0: a lot of great ideas.
1: I I am inspired you guys. So, thank you so much.
0: You help you they're going to help us through a crisis.
1: I know. Yeah. With my, <laughs> both personal <laughs> and <laughs> we're here and professional. <laughs> uh before we let you guys go, we want to be further inspired. So, uh please let us know what what is giving you energy, what's inspiring you. Uh, What are your tips for our listeners?
3: Podcast, book, series. Mm. Well, it was already mentioned that I I really like looking at sort of what the individual can can do, not just in crisis, but in general. That comes from a very pessimistic place, I have to say, because my my sort of general assumption is that individuals don't have much power and the structure determines everything. But as an attempt to try to find some hope, I look at the individual. And one of the books I'm reading now is called Choosing Courage, uh, The Everyday Guide to Being Brave at Work. So it really focuses on the workplace and how to deal with sort of sticky, thorny situations that come across your path that are that are not like world changing crises, but really just you know say you witness um, sexually inappropriate behavior or you hear someone being bullied how do you courageously step into that field in a way that's helpful and not you know just sort of getting people in trouble um, and I find that book really helpful as a way to think through you know what I can do and what my colleagues can do in our workplace in our sort of everyday lives so I would give that as a tip to cool. all of our the listeners three of
0: us adamantly wrote that down so I think <laughs> we're all three very interested <laughs> in reading that book we, we all were looking for pens to write that one down uh, thanks for that mm-hmm.
2: yeah very, very good tip. I'm definitely <laughs> going to read this also maybe with some students to mm-hmm. see how they mm-hmm. can empower themselves in the organizations where they will work. Um, the book I was thinking of was a uh, novel that uh, uh, my co-author, uh, Sandra Kuipers, gave for me as a dissertation uh, gift last year. And uh, the book's called The Will at the End of the World by John Ironmonger. And uh, it's a book about a pandemic, which is uh, interesting. We're not really sure what caused the pandemic or is not the COVID pandemic because it was written well before. But it's about a very little town that is very resilient and adaptive uh, to this pandemic that is happening. Uh, basically because one person, so one individual, uh, starts uh, preparing the village for what is about to come. And uh, it's a very nice novel to read about crisis. And it's beautifully written. And it's just a story about community building, about the resilience of a community, and about adaptation to uh, new circumstances. So I love it. Mm, great. Oh, I love cool. these tips. These are fantastic.
1: Well, thank you.
2: Thank you
0: so much. This was really great. My pleasure. Yeah, thank you.
1: Thanks for joining us for this session of Traveling Concepts On Air.
0: For more information, please visit Utrecht University's Contesting Governance Platform website.
1: If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, email us at contestinggovernance at uu.nl.
0: Please subscribe and follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And more importantly, spread the word
1: with your colleagues and friends. Till next time.